Welcome to the Investor Coaching Show, a podcast to help you get an insider's view of the financial world and escape common investment traps. We look at the financial news of the day and help you make sense of it so you can relax about money. And here's your host, Paul Winkler. And welcome. This is the Investor Coaching Show. Paul Winkler. Talking money, investing, financial planning, and thankfully not freezing because I'm inside, not outside. I was joking around with some friends of mine. I said, you know, that we, we had to cancel something because the North decided to take over the South and uh, it stayed for a little bit too long. I mean, it just, wow, cold out there and the ice. I don't know if you guys, you know, Nick, hmm? Leviticus, you guys dealt with any of this ice out there, but you don't, I don't care if you got four wheel drive. When you hit solid ice, you're not driving on it. Oh, yeah, no, no. not at all. Uh, yeah. I, I, I don't deal with ice. I could deal with snow. Well, I, I could do that. You know, in upstate New York, I would, that's where I grew up. I learned to drive on stuff, but you don't learn to drive on black ice. It just no. doesn't work real well. So anyway, I hope if you're If you can't walk cozy. on it, you know you can't drive on it. Oh, man. Not the truth. I mean, you know, it's a good thing you wear a lot of clothes because you bounce. When you, <laughs> that part. <laughs> when you hit, hit the ground. Uh, but um, anyway, so yeah, there's uh, always, always fun things to uh, to discuss here. Well, uh, about the financial world, there are a lot of different things. That it, it may feel like the lightning first hour, because I'm going to go through a bunch of things in the first hour. There was, I was watching TV this week. And watching CNBC, and you know, one of my pet peeves is, I say pet peeves, it's just what I tell people, don't, don't try this, don't do this. You know, trying to pick stocks and determine which companies are going to do better in the future, you know, when to get in the market, when to get out of the market is a huge waste of time. And it's because there are so many people out there that are voting on the value of a company that when they make that vote, you know, they're going to be putting money behind that because they're voting with their dollars. And, you know, they may be voting that something is going to go down. They might short the stock. Uh, they may be voting that it's going to go up and that's where they buy it long. But I always get a kick out of one of the CNBC hosts who is famously known for his stock picking show, Jim Cramer. So he... <laughs> a lot of times he will get behind a particular company and say, ah, you know, I think this company's great. I think, yeah, bye, 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 bye. You know, he had this thing where he was saying Bitcoin. Uh, and when the ETF came out, sell, sell, sell. Um, which, you know, I happen to agree with that one because I don't like owning a thing that is not an investment. Uh, that's, you know, investment, no cost of capital behind those types of, uh, you know, gold or silver or cryptocurrencies or anything like that. Uh, so, you know, it'd be like saying that it would be an investment for me to buy yen. That doesn't make any sense. Could it go up? Could yen go up first? Oh, yeah, sure it can. But, you know, the reality of it is you don't know. It's very, very risky. More about that in a second. But anyway, so Kramer's, he's in there talking with, he's got a couple other guys on there, and he gets into a rant because all of a sudden Morgan Stanley – is coming out with their profits. And they had a really good quarter. You know, it was a really good quarter from an earnings standpoint. And what do you think is going to happen with a stock if it has a good earnings quarter? Well, you'd think it would go up, right? 
Well, that's not exactly what was happening. And you guys just you got to hear his rant. You ready? I mean, check, check this out. Morgan Stanley down three. How about taking it down six? Why don't you just do that, you bunch of clowns? Just take it down. You are a fatuous individual. He's just getting all fired up. You know, you got to think maybe at some point that he recommended the stock and now it's going down. He recommended it probably because the earnings he thought were going to be good. And that is a really good example of how trying to pick stocks and and predict the future because you don't know what everybody else is assuming regarding the earnings of that company. If everybody else thinks that the earnings are going to be even better, even more stellar, then the stock will go down. But anyway, he's getting really, really mad. But you got to hear what his co-host had to say when he when he's going on this ramp. Are you directing your hostility at the wrong audience here? I'm a chief. I'm a chief. There's, there's a guy who runs me. I like that. Most people scream at the TV. Here. You scream at the TV from the other side. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Which is hilarious. <laughs> he's, that's like me. I'll be listening and I'll be screaming at the TV and go, what are you saying that for? That's crazy. What are you talking about? And and I just think he's, he's saying most people scream at the TV. And I'm thinking, yeah, I got my hand up. Yeah, me. Uh, uh, you're screaming at the TV from the other side. The viewers. I, yeah. I, absolutely. Because these people are, I, I mean, I got to tell you. Not our viewers. You're talking when you saw. I want to make it clear here. He well, loves his viewers. Most time. not the people who are selling Morgan Stanley. Most selling. And that's it. He's just getting upset. The people that are selling Morgan Stanley and and the people that are having to sell it, they wouldn't, they don't want to sell it for the lower price. But it's the buyers. The buyers are sitting there, which is kind of, you know, he says you're mad at people selling Morgan Stanley. And the reality of it is uh, it's the buyers that are saying, eh, you know, I'll take it. But, you know, there's some risk here, so I'll pay a lower price. And that's what you get upset about. So I just thought that was funny. Anyway, um, there was a, there was another speaking of funny things. There was an, an article in the journal. I think it was yeah, the Wall Street Journal blew my mind. It was this lady and. Said she talked like a millionaire. So it's like the number one most read article in the Wall Street Journal. Talked like a millionaire, but she slept in a parking garage and fooled nearly everybody. And this is a really good example of how some people, you can fool some people some of the time. And a lot of people some of the time as well, apparently, because this lady was a documentary filmmaker. Uh, Joe Franklin was her name, and she planned the details for a, a planned gala in Franklin's honor at the Four Seasons. So the University of Florida, they were actually planning this big gala uh, for Joe Franklin at the Four Seasons Hotel in Washington, D.C. Franklin had pledged $2 million to her alma mater. And her guest list was for the party included the entire staff of the PBS NewsHour. And they're all thinking, hey, we're going to go to this big shindig for this person that's donating a, a ton of money to this gala, uh, to this alma mater. And, and they're having this big gala. It says the day before the gala, the school officials learned her seven-figure check had bounced. That's not something you want to do. Uh, they, they boarded their flight to Washington, hoping to straighten everything out. So they, they're like, hey, we got to go get this thing figured out. Can't be a problem here. Next day, they found out that Franklin hadn't arrived at, this, hadn't arrived at the Four Seasons. The credit card number she gave wasn't working. And they're like, what on earth is going on? And they come to find out, and it says that she had broken her foot and couldn't make it to Washington. 
the school's esteemed graduate, once a journalist and documentary filmmaker specializing in the Middle East, emerged as a troubled and gifted fabulist. In other words, a creator of fake stories. Two million dollar gift was an illusion. It was a, a long, amongst a long string of fantasies concocted by her. And she came from her, she was actually homeless. And apparently what happened was that she, uh, you know, these people, she would go into these businesses and they were just blown away by her knowledge of the political world and, and her level of, uh, of understanding. But, but apparently what happened, she just actually started, you know, coming out and they, they started noticing she's wearing the same clothes every time she walks into these places and they figure, Oh my goodness. But can you just imagine, and you see this a lot of times, you know, people that get involved and I've seen this in the financial world, person gets involved in a charity and they become very, very involved in the charity. And then what happens, people start to trust them. And they, you know, they go, then they go, wow, this person is really great. They're working for this charity. They're, you know, just really trustworthy. And then all of a sudden, they, you find out that they're actually running a Ponzi scheme. I mean, things like that. Now, this lady wasn't running a Ponzi scheme, but it's just, you see these kinds of things quite often. And it's, uh, it's unfortunate, but a lot of times what we do is, as humans is we tend to trust people for the wrong reasons and we take shortcuts to trusting them. It's like, have you ever looked at somebody and go, I just don't trust that person. And the reason you don't may not trust them is they look like somebody you didn't like when you were a kid, <laughs> right? You ever have that happen? Uh, you know, you, you call it transference. And then, you know, what happens is then you may be pushing away somebody that's like a really great person. And we do that. We look for shortcuts when trying to determine whether somebody is somebody that we want to connect with or not. But anyway, I thought that was fascinating. Another thing that I thought was interesting. This is a topic that I have talked about here on the show before. I had this guy. He was a financial planner, very gifted financial planner. As a matter of fact, used to listen to the show and became a planner that I started working with me and in their very, very early years. Until I, we kind of both came to the conclusion. He came to the conclusion before I did. Well, I just came to the conclusion that I didn't think that this was what he wanted to do with his life. It's just some reason there was something about it. You know, being a financial planner and actually, you know, doing what we do and educating and teaching. And uh, I don't even remember why. But one day he comes in and we get into this conversation. He goes, I got to get it. I got to quit. I I can't do this anymore. And I was going, well, yeah, you know, I kind of figured maybe you weren't right for this business. And he goes, yeah, I don't like people. <laughs> and I laughed and I said, yeah, man, you know, you, you probably are going to want to like people to be in this business. It's probably not a good business for you if you don't care for people. And he was just so frustrated because every time he would teach somebody something, you know, he was a really smart guy, but he was just frustrated when people didn't quite get things. It's just, that's, it. I mean, you do one thing really well, they don't do that. And just because you're really gifted and you you know your stuff about finance and investing doesn't mean everybody else is going to get it. You know, so you just got to be really sensitive to that. But anyway, he didn't uh, he didn't work out so well. But anyway, we did had we had this one conversation one day, and we were talking about whether he should rent a home or whether he should buy a home. 
And this is a conversation that comes up increasingly because people are going, well, gosh, you know, I, I saw something. It was like, I don't, man, it was like the first time home purchase is going to on average age, people age 49 or something like that. I mean, it's really getting up there, up there high in age. And it's just because homes just aren't terribly affordable. So it's really frustrating a lot of younger people that they can't buy a home. And a lot of times what I'm telling them is don't beat yourself up. Don't worry about it so much. And I tell them this story of this financial planner and myself sitting down there trying to determine whether he should buy a home or whether he should rent. And so he says, Paul, what do I look at? And I says, well, you know, one of the things we got to look at is people forget about this when you borrow money uh, and you borrow, you know, a few hundred thousand dollars, you know, maybe, you know, and right the average, the median home price right now in 2023, you know what it is, guys? About $400,000. Median, half or above, half or below. And use medium because it gets rid of the skewing of ultra, ultra rich people and the homes that they buy. That's really, that's, that's amazing. So you take, take $400,000 and you say, you know, let's say we've got, um, you know, 6% interest. And you're looking at $2,000 a month, literally, in just interest payments. Now, you think about that, $2,000 per month in interest payments. So when you're buying that home, that's money that's going out the door that doesn't return back to you because it goes to the bank or you know wherever you borrowed the money from, right? Then you got to look at the difference between what it costs to buy homeowner's insurance and renter's insurance, because the renter's insurance, you're only covering the contents of the home. You're not physically covering the home itself. You know, the property owner has got to pay for the insurance that covers the home against damage, fire, or whatever, you know, tornado, ice. <laughs> got to deal with that right now. Uh, but, you know, you got those, those differentials and expenses have to be determined and thought about when it comes to do I buy or do I rent? And then you got to think about, well, okay, so I got upkeep. You know, I've got to maybe keep the yard up. Maybe I've got to fix things when they break. You know, I've got to, you know, if the air conditioning unit goes out or lights go out or, or you know, whatever, anything that breaks around the house, now you're the one that has to repair it, replace it, you know, maybe having to replace carpeting every once in a while or flooring or whatever. <laughs> I could tell you horror stories about that. Uh, but you know, if we look at the differences between those things, then you got to add property taxes on top of that, because as the homeowner, you'd pay property taxes as the renter. You're not paying paying property taxes directly. Uh, you know, so you look at those differences, and when you really start to add it up, and when we did, we were just, well, why would I own a home? Is kind of the, what my financial planner guy walked away with. Why would I do that? It's especially seeing as at some point I'll probably get married and I <laughs> completed the sentence for him. And I said, yeah, and whoever you marry is going to hate the house that you bought <laughs> and you're going to be forced to sell it. Uh, so he's, yeah, that's exactly right. So he ended up renting and that was it. Uh, but there was an article that came out in Market Watch and it was renting is cheaper than owning a home. And I hadn't, I've never seen this before in 90% of the U.S. In 90% of the U.S., renting is cheaper than owning a home, according to MarketWatch. The vast majority of U.S. real estate markets, renting is still cheaper than owning. According to a new report, 
from Adam, A-T-T-O-M, that looked at renting versus owning three-bedroom homes. The analysis revealed that homeowners can't seem to catch a break in this market. As mortgage rates fall from two-decade highs, home prices continue to rise, keeping the cost of owning high. In contrast, renting is a lot more affordable. Median rental rates require a smaller portion of wages than buying a home. They're looking at it as a proportion of your wages, which is typically how you look at it when it comes to budgeting. In 296 out of 338 counties in the United States, or 88%. And it says that uh, continuously increasing home prices are contributing to this. Mortgage rates finally start to slide downward. There's some relief. But what is happening is the lack of homes for sale because people are still sitting on those low interest rates and they don't want to sell their home because then they're going to have to buy another place and they're going to have to go get a loan at a higher interest rate. They're not digging that. So that's what's happening. So you've got a lack of homes and that lack of homes has been driving up prices. And in essence, you know, you, they call this the lock-in effect is, is actually what that's called. Now, it says that they have a few places, you know, you'll have like in, uh, in Honolulu, uh, if you're thinking of moving there, buying would eat up 134% of average local wages, while renting requires only 67%. That's a pretty big differential right there. But they got Brooklyn, New York, uh, 136 versus 72%. Oakland, California, 108 versus 51. Those are the big, big differences right there. On the flip side, you have a couple places that it's more affordable to own than rent. Yeah, like Riverside County, California was one of them. It was, And it was only a little bit more. It was only a little bit more in that particular county. Uh, Wayne County, Michigan in Detroit was another example. But you think about Detroit, a lot of people have moved out. It's kind of a declining or has declined significantly over many decades area of the country. Uh, but uh, just interesting to, to actually see that a lot of places it is more affordable right now to rent than it is to own which is just another one of those things to think about when I've, I've talked about people, you know, they feel like they're throwing their money away on rent, but there's more to look at when it comes to that. It's not that cut and dried a decision, and it doesn't always make more sense to own versus renting. Thanks for tuning in to the Investor Coaching Podcast. Now, you may be one of these people that's been listening and realizing, wow, investing, there's a lot more to it than meets the eye and financial planning tax laws constantly changing and recognizing that maybe you might need some help in this area, but you don't want just anybody to help you out. So we have 10 offices in the Middle Tennessee area and everything we do is fee only. We align our interests with your interests. So you can get it initial 15-minute phone call with any one of our offices just by going to paulwinkler.com forward slash call. That's it. Every one of the offices is run by somebody with 20 plus years experience. They're all degree planners. They all have academic backgrounds in investing and you can get the help that you need. So if you want to set up a complimentary phone consultation, just go to paulwinkler.com forward slash call. And we look forward to seeing you soon. I think back to the 1970s, and one of the big complaints that we had back then was that everything you had, uh, um, oh, what was was the term that we used? Planned obsolescence was the term that we used. 
and you would have companies make things. And the whole idea is that they would make things that would just last just so long. You didn't want them to last too long and you didn't want them to be too foolproof. I mean, there are people that talk about the tungsten light bulb. You know, they could have done something way better than tungsten light bulb for a long time. They didn't because light bulbs would burn out and you have to buy new light bulbs. And it's, it's kind of like how our economy runs now, right? Right. You know, it's, it's like you don't have anything where you just buy something and you're done. It's usually have a, a subscription. Like if you want to use Microsoft PowerPoint or Word or something like that, it's just you buy a subscription and they're going to update the program and you're going to get all the updates and you pay single amount. And it's kind of like being the uh, the frog in the proverbial pot and you know, they just kind of turn up the heat and you don't jump out. No, that's, that's a myth. And, you, you know, that's actually a myth, that whole idea of a frog in a pot. But anyway, I digress. So the idea of planned obsolescence is a great way to get people to keep coming back and buying your product. Well, the most recent new entrant into that market is furniture. Have you guys bought a piece of furniture lately? Have you bought like a couch or no. bought a chair? No? no. Okay. You may be really surprised to hear what's going on right now. According to the Wall Street Journal, your new $3,000 couch might be garbage in three years. That's it. I wonder if you can rent a couch for less than 3000 or for, for 1000 a year. Yeah, a rent-a-center. <laughs> you, you might want to do that. Uh, lifespan of your new, because you didn't leash, you don't have to throw it out. They come pick it up. Uh, the lifespan of your new sofa much be, may be much more, much shorter than you expect. Uh, instead of a once-in-a-decade purchase, furniture makers and restorers say couches are becoming more like fast fashion. Produced with cheaper materials prone to trends and headed to the landfill after just a few years. Now, where are all the environmentalists when you need them? I mean, you know, you look at that. Headed to the landfill in just a couple of years. Uh, High-quality sofas still exist, pros say, but they're harder to find. And it says they have the mass market options, which are, you know, they're $3,000 increasingly made with less sturdy materials, construction methods. And they said consumers are complaining that their new couch cushions are lumpier, springs are squeakier, frames flimsier than those of the well-loved models they replaced. And, you know, the, these people, you know, they're talking about these people go in and buy these things. And they have these cushions, they slide forward and the buttons are popping off of them. And, and it says furniture makers were inundated early in the pandemic as COVID-19 precautions kept millions of people home. Social media posts bemoaning new furniture have shot up since then, mentioning that uh, these sofas of low quality falling apart or uncomfortable were up 19%. So these complaints are coming in and jumping significantly in 2023 across platforms, including Twitter, YouTube and Reddit compared to 2020. And uh, apparently what's happening is they're blaming it. I, I think this is funny. They're blaming it on people that are out there and they're just shopaholics. <laughs> they're shopaholic tendencies. Uh, you know, they're, they're just going to replace them anyway. I don't know about you, but that's the last thing that I feel like replacing every few years. I really don't care if my sofa is in fashion, quite frankly. So you're saying don't buy that Versace co uh, couch? I don't know. I don't know what the what? <laughs> don't buy that I Versace have no idea couch. what that is. 
I have no idea what that is. A fashion. Is, okay. Oh, is that is that okay? See, that proves that I have no <laughs> clue about fashion. And, uh, and he says, you know, it looks like we've already had this co- this couch for years instead of just one person says. And and they said, you know, what's happening is you're having these fractured frames. Things are like br- literally breaking in half. They're flaking leather, pancake cushions. And they says, you know, the older frames, what you're looking for, they have hardwood, plywood frames. This furniture designer from Rochester Institute of Technology says many newer sofas use particle board, medium density fiberboard and he says basically it's just wood chips mixed with glue doesn't hold a screw doesn't repair gets wet forget about it and it says you know the easiest way to suss out your sofa skeleton he advises he says you gotta look underneath don't just jump on it in the store and think oh this is comfortable look at it underneath look at what the wood pieces are interconnected with you know he says they have these mortise and tenon joinery he calls it with more brittle couches. These connections are made with an external bracket. He says, wiggling the arms, you know, wiggle the arms, wiggle the backrest, see if it's stable. And the other thing that he talks about doing here is that, you know, the people are paying, you know, five, $6,000 for uh, a sofa. He says, you've got to look at, you know, the extendable foot and the backrest. And he says, you know, some of these things are just junk. They're snapping. And uh, you got to watch out. So it just reminds me so much of the 70s, you know, you had for a while. And, you know, I, I guess, you know, thinking about that, I was an economics student coming up through the uh, doing some graduate work and, and work coming out of University of Albany. And we would talk about how the car makers were doing that back in the 1970s and early 1980s. And one of the things that we would talk about is how they're doing this and this is the reason they're doing it. But what ended up happening, probably halfway through my economics degree, all of a sudden these cars started coming out and they were reliable. And people started buying them like crazy. And they were made by, you guessed it, Japanese automakers. And I think that's exactly what's going to happen. You know, you'll get away with this junk for just a little while. And then all of a sudden, somebody's going to come out and go, you know what? This is garbage. We can't do this to people anymore. And then it changes. But I just, uh, I think it's interesting just to see how sometimes businesses get a little bit lazy. They make a little bit more money having a replaceable sofa, but people get sick of it. It happens. And, you know, you, you never know. It's hard to predict who is going to come out with that. No, nobody would have predicted. I guess that's probably one of the points I'd like to make right here is nobody predicted that it would be the Japanese. Now we look back and go, because remember what it was in the 1970s? If it came out of Japan, it was junk. That's what we always joked about. It was junk if it came out of Japan. So nobody thought that it was going to come out of Japan. And part of it, and this is something I learned when I was having my economics degree, part of it came down to there was a guy that had approached United States automakers. And he said, I have got some ideas for how to make our cars better. And what happened is the U.S. automakers just basically said, no, we don't need you. We don't need your idea. You can now get out of here. We don't need it. We're doing fine. They were fat, dumb, and happy. They were producing most of the cars being bought around the world, even though they were junk even though the, the quality was degrading 
They were actually making most of the cars that were being purchased around the world. And then what he did is he said, well, I'll take my idea someplace else. And he was the one that took his idea to Japan. I don't, I can't remember his name for the life of me, but that's exactly what he did. And then the rest is history. Japan ended up dominating the auto industry. If you looked at consumer reports in the late 80s, early 90s, all the five-star cars were Japanese. U.S. cars, horrible. And then the U.S. automakers decided, we can't do this anymore. I think it's just interesting to see how history repeats itself. It's just doing it in a different industry right now. Hey, this is Paul Winkler. Hope you enjoyed today's edition of the Investor Coaching Show. You want to learn more about what we do, go to our website, paulwinkler.com. You can watch some of the videos there. And if you're not already a client, you can set up a free initial consultation. Until next time, I'm Paul Winkler reminding you that I believe that more educated investors are more competent investors and confident investors are more successful investors. Have a great one. Advisory services offered through Paul Winkler, Inc., an SEC-registered investment advisor. The opinions voiced and information provided in this material are for general informational purposes only and not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine what investments are appropriate for you, please consult with a financial advisor. Paul Winkler, Inc. does not provide tax or legal advice. Please consult your tax or legal advisor regarding your particular situation.